Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 91 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, the death of Chief Designer Sergei Pavlovich Korolev, Part 3. The actual circumstances of Sergei Korolev's death remain somewhat uncertain. In December of 1965, he was supposedly diagnosed with a bleeding polyp in his large intestine. He entered the hospital on January 5, 1966 for routine surgery. He died nine days later. The Soviet Union officially stated that he had what turned out to be a large cancerous tumor in his abdomen. But his chief rival, Valentin Glushko, later reported that he actually died due to a poorly performed operation for hemorrhoids. Another version states that the operation was going well and no one was predicting any complications. However, suddenly during the operation, Korolev started to bleed. Doctors tried to provide intubation for him to allow him to breathe freely, but his jaws, which were injured during his time in the gulag, did not heal properly and impeded the installation of the breathing tube and Korolev died without regaining consciousness. On this episode, I'm going to present the Boris Chertok version of Korolev's death. You may recall from previous episodes, Chertok was a prominent Soviet rocket designer. He was an eyewitness to these events, and he authored a four-volume book called Rockets and People, which NASA and other historians consider to be the definitive source of information about the history of the Soviet space program. We will begin on the morning of January 5, 1966. Korolev went to the Kremlin Hospital in Moscow. By coincidence, his mother was also there. On January 6th, his wife Nina visited the hospital and she was told that the Kremlin Hospital was the best place for Korolev. After several days of examinations, an operation was scheduled for January 14th. On the eve of the operation, it was discovered that Soviet Minister of Health Boris Vasilievich Petrovsky, a cardiac surgeon, would be attending. Then it turned out that Petrovsky wasn't just attending, but that he was actually performing the operation. Evidently, the selection of the operating surgeon was the result of a mutual agreement between Korolev and Petrovsky. Korolev was impressed that he was going to be operated on not just by the famous surgeon, but by the Soviet Minister of Health to boot. In the midst of the daily hustle and bustle, the majority of those close to Korolev, even the members of the Council of Chiefs who took an interest in each other's health, did not give much thought to this operation. They believed it was not a big deal, a simple polyp removal, a common operation. The consensus was that this type of surgery was less complicated than an appendectomy. Everyone was told that Korolev would be back at work in a week. Around noon on January 14th, Chertok was alone in his office studying a folder of classified mail that had accumulated during the past few days. He had asked not to be disturbed. Suddenly, his subordinate ran in and shouted, 
Sergei Pavlovich has died. Chertok responded, Are you out of your mind? Which Sergei Pavlovich? Ours, ours, Sergei Pavlovich Korolov. His wife telephoned from the hospital. Chertok stood up dumbfounded, having no idea what to do next. This can't be. This really shouldn't be happening. A few seconds later, he called the Kremlin for verification. Chertok was told Petrovsky and Vizhnevsky performed the operation. In addition to polyps, they found a malignant tumor. They did all they could, but his heart couldn't take it. The operation lasted over four hours. Next, Chertok went to see Korolov's deputy, Vasily Mishin. When he arrived, several high-ranking officials were already gathering in Mishin's office. Leonid Smirnov from the Ministry of Armaments was appointed chairman of a government commission on funeral arrangements for Korolov by the Central Committee. The procedure for high-level funerals was well drilled. Brezhnev and Politburo members were informed of Korolov's death right away. After consulting with one another over the telephone, without hesitation, they decided to announce to the world who Korolov really was. Under a policy initiated by Stalin and continued by his predecessors, the identity of Korolov was not revealed until after his death. The purported reason was to protect him from foreign agents from the United States. As a result, the Soviet people didn't become aware of his accomplishments until after his death. In the first hours after receiving the news of his death, what upset Chertok and the other high-ranking officials more than anything was, how could this happen? No one could come up with any sensible explanation. Chertok did not have much time to think about what happened. Instead, a call came in from the Kremlin which gave Chertok the task of writing the obituary. He had one hour to deliver it to the Central Committee. Chertok had a difficult time gathering his thoughts to write an obituary. When he was finished, he had written about the great scientist, academician, and scientific and industrial organizer without mentioning his work in rocket and space technology. An hour and a half later, Chertok entered the office of Dmitrievich Serbin, known by his friends as Ivan the Terrible, the head of the Central Committee Department of the Defense Industry. Chertok handed him the text of the obituary. Serbin glanced over it and, with a barely perceptible smile, said, It can't be this modest. We have to tell people the truth about Korolov. Look, read this. We started to write something ourselves while you were driving over. Chertok could not believe his eyes when he read what Serbin had written. Quote, With the passing of S.P. Korolov, our nation and world science has lost a distinguished scientist in the field of rocket space technology. The designer of the first artificial satellite and the spacecraft that ushered in the era of man's conquest of space. Until the end of his life, all his efforts were devoted to the development of Soviet rocket space technology. S.P. Korolev was the foremost designer of rocket space systems 
that achieved world first. Under the leadership of S.P. Korolev, the Soviet Union produced the piloted spacecraft that carried the first human being into space and from which the first spacewalk was performed. End quote. Chertok attempted to add another sentence to the obituary, but Serban would not allow it. The sentence was, quote, Korolev remained an ardent patriot and steadfastly pursued his goal to fulfill the dream of spaceflight, despite years of unjust persecution. In this mild form, Chertok was attempting to inform the reader that SP had suffered repression. Chertok and Serban spent another 30 minutes or so composing the text. This is how the obituary was published on Sunday, January 16th, in all the national newspapers. The delay of an entire 24 hours was explained by the fact that the medical report needed to be published at the same time. A good photograph needed to be provided and the funeral arrangements announced. That evening, Mission and Chertok listened to Korolev's wife, Nina, tell the story of what happened at the hospital. On the day of the operation, she had been at the hospital since early in the morning and managed to see Korolev alive. The chief of surgery assured her that the operation would last no more than an hour. But one hour passed, then two. The nurses shot out of the operating room with some instructions. She understood that they were adjusting the respirator. They rolled in some other equipment, then the chief surgeon, who was assisting Petrovsky, came out and told her that there were complications. Suddenly, Soviet Army head surgeon Vishnevsky appeared from somewhere and quickly strode into the operating room. Again, agonizingly uncertainty. More than four hours had passed since the operation began when they announced to Nina that they had done all they could. They had been unable to stop the hemorrhaging after they removed the polyps. They made the decision to open up his abdominal cavity. When they started to get closer to the site of the hemorrhage, they discovered a fist-sized tumor. It was a malignant tumor. Petrovsky made the decision to remove the tumor. In so doing, they removed part of his rectum. They would have to take out the remaining part through the abdomen. In the end, cardiac failure developed very rapidly. It turned out that for a long time they had been unable to insert the respirator tube into Korolev's trachea. They didn't tell Nina the whole truth. At that time, she was in no condition to grasp everything, much less pass it on to us. There was some controversy about who was to blame for the tragedy. Some felt it would have been better if the operation had been performed by a specialist surgeon rather than by the Minister of Health. But Korolev would almost certainly have died anyway. The years of hardship in Stalin's gulags had taken their toll on his health. His heart had been weakened. Korolev's body was taken to the Great Hall of Columns of the House of Unions, where it lay in state on a high pedestal covered with flowers as crowds of mourners filed past to pay their respects. The hall's white marble columns were draped with red and black ribbons. 
Symphonies by Tchaikovsky and Beethoven filled the air. But why did all the people come to see someone they just heard about within the last couple of days? Chertok believed it was because a particle of truth had finally been revealed to the people. They had finally been told who deserved the tribute for human civilization's greatest triumph. There was a general sense of being party to a partially divulged secret. Korloff might be dead, but at least one could catch a glimpse of him. There was a shared grief and a shared pride. It was late in coming, but the people had been given the opportunity to pay tribute to the great Korolov for his great achievements. It was as if everyone who passed by the casket brushed up against these historic achievements. Finally, the name of the chief designer was acknowledged, and there was a military parade in his honor in Red Square. Brezhnev gave a speech in which he said, Our country had lost its most outstanding son who had survived repression and gone on to perform work of the very highest importance. Yuri Gagarin talked of how the cosmonaut corps had lost its father figure. Gagarin said the name of Sergei Pavlovich is synonymous with one entire chapter of the history of mankind. The first flight of an artificial Earth satellite, the first flight by the moon, the first flight by a human being in space, and the first free walk in space of a human being. That summed up the highlights of Korolov's career for all to hear. From the columned hall, Korolov's body was taken for cremation. Brezhnev, Gagarin, Leonov, and other Soviet officials then took turns to carry his ashes to their place of burial in the Kremlin Wall. There was a feeling of dread as well as loss throughout the Soviet Union when Korolev died. People understood that they had lost someone of great importance to their country. Although Sergei Pavlovich had never sought public recognition during his life because he did not want it to interfere with his work, when he died, the great secrecy surrounding his identity was finally abandoned. The death of the chief designer was an immense loss to the Soviet space program. His deputy, Vasily Mishin, who had worked brilliantly with Korolev, succeeded him. But without Korolev, Mishin was lost. He was a very good engineer, but he had his weak points, one of which was he drank. He was also hesitant poor at making decisions, and reluctant to take risk. This was to cost the Soviet program dearly. Compared to Korolev, Mission was bad at managing relations with the cosmonaut corps, too. When he took over as leader of the lunar program, a great rift developed between those who had been recruited at the beginning, which were all military men, fighter pilots like Gagarin and Leonov, and those recruited subsequently, mainly of whom were civilians. The first civilians recruited in 1963 included a number of engineers from Korolev's Institute and five women, among them Valentina Tereshkova.
A second group of civilians who joined the following year included engineers from the OKB-1, such as Valery Kubasov, Konstantin Fiaktistok, and Oleg Makarov, recruited so that engineers could see firsthand the physical demands of the spacecraft being built. The harsh physical tests and requirements to which the original cosmonauts had been subjected were dropped. Though the engineers were older than the original cosmonauts, they were not the veterans of the Corps. But Mission, who knew many of the engineers well, favored them and did everything he could to promote them, which created great tension. Alexei Leonov personally did not get along with Mission very well at all. Leonov feared at the time that many of Korolev's great plans for lunar missions would be much more difficult to realize now that Korolev was dead. Leonov did not know just how difficult it would be at that time, but he is convinced now that had Korolev lived just a little longer, the Soviets would have been the first to circumnavigate the moon. With Korolev gone, the year 1966 was difficult for the Soviet space program. This is how Alexei Leonov described it. Through the pages of Life magazine, we, meaning the Soviets, followed the progress of the American space program quite closely. It was clear that each successive Gemini mission had taken the Americans closer to the first launch of their latest spacecraft, Apollo, and closer to the goal of a moon landing. Even though we had launched no manned missions in the 12 months following Korolev's death in January of 1966, we did launch a series of missions by unmanned lunar probes successfully. The probes had gone into lunar orbit and even landed on the moon, providing us with vital information for our own planned manned lunar missions. I, meaning Leonov, was undergoing extensive training for a lunar mission by this time. In order to focus attention and resources, our cosmonaut corps was divided into two groups. One group, which included Yuri Gagarin and Vladimir Komarov, was training to fly our latest Soyuz in Earth orbit. Korolev had begun theoretical work on Soyuz as early as the 1950s, and construction of the spacecraft, a modified version of which still flies today, had begun several years before his death. The second group, of which I was commander, was training for circumlunar missions in a modified version of the Soyuz known as the L-1, or Zond, and also for lunar landing missions in another modified Soyuz known as the L-3. Vasily Mission's cautious plan called for three circumlunar missions to be carried out with three different two-man crews, one of which would then be chosen to make the first lunar landing. The initial plan was for me to command the first circumlunar mission, together with Oleg Makarov, in June or July of 1967. We then expected to be able to accomplish the first moon landing ahead of the Americans 
in September 1968. Our plans for circumlunar and lunar landing missions had much in common with the Apollo scheme. The main difference was that we planned for only one cosmonaut to make a landing on the surface of the moon, while another remained in orbit. The reason for this was the limited lifting capacity of the new N-1 rocket booster, which Korolev had been heavily involved in designing to launch the L-3 spacecraft. And that was Alexei Leonov describing what the Soviets were doing in 1966 while the U.S. was enjoying so much success with Jiminy. Before I conclude, Korolev, I thought it would be appropriate to end with a happier time. I have a brief recording of one of the highlights of Korolev's life. This is the launch of Vostok 1. The voices you will hear are Sergei Korolev and Yuri Gagarin. his career, Korolev led the development of the world's first ballistic missile, the R-7, which became a base for a long-lasting family of space boosters that carried Russian cosmonauts into orbit for decades to come. In the following years, Korolev led the development of several generations of ballistic missiles, launch vehicles, science, military, and communication satellites, interplanetary probes, and manned spacecraft. Korolev died at the height of his career on January 14, 1966. Due to the secret nature of the Soviet space program, Korolev's contribution to the program was publicly recognized by the Soviet authorities only after his death. For several more decades, Korolev's personality remained a subject of distortion by the official Soviet press. Finally, in 1994, a Russian journalist and historian published the first uncensored biography of Sergei Korolev, and in 2002, Korolev's daughter, Natalia, completed her own biography of her legendary father. Korolev's talents were immense vision, enthusiasm, and energy that motivated his co-workers and subordinates. His personal attention to detail ensured that critical equipment was of the highest quality and that manned space flights were reasonably safely conducted.
conducted with the exception of the Voskhod program. Korolev had to be enormously persistent and convinced of the correctness of his views to push his projects forward against immense opposition and competition. But these qualities became less appropriate as projects increased in number and scope. Korolev's refusal to compromise on technical issues resulted in alienation of other chief designers, most notably his rival, Valentin Glushko, forcing him to lose years of time developing new sources of rocket engines. The U.S. required the resources and expertise of four major contractors to develop the Saturn V booster and the Apollo spacecraft. Korolev was attempting to do the same with a single industrial enterprise. He left his successor, Mission, with a seemingly impossible task. Then again, had Korolev lived a few more years in good health, perhaps he could have beat the Americans to the moon and gone on to Mars. for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.